0: y'all can grab a seat yeah maybe okay sure that was to the microphone not to you guys sitting down you all sat down before I even said anything so I didn't even need to say that but uh, thank you as Drew's saying uh I just want to reiterate that we will be meeting here tonight for blueprint it's something we normally like to do inside of people's homes specifically me and Kyle's home when possible and uh, other leaders in the community just given the nature of the last 6 weeks and the people in this community that have uh, been exposed or recently tested positive for covid we figured it might be a better idea to just keep that out of people's houses for uh, 2 weeks so we're going to be up here uh tonight at 5 and then next week uh, right after and that's normally something we always do in the evening but since uh Next week's the Super Bowl, and we were supposed to do it last week, and that got canceled and, or pushed back. So anyways, if you're interested, there's still plenty of time to sign up. We'll have some light snacks. Uh, we can have child care tonight if that is needed, if you're interested in signing up, because we'll have those rooms back there. Super easy. Um, and then next week, if you do it right after church, we'll provide food for you as well. Um, so we just need to know if you're going to be here. And that'll be something easy for you to do. And we'll just meet in the back. And it usually lasts about an hour uh, each night, so or each session. So I just wanted to remind you of that. Come, be a part of it. I will say this, as we talk about all of that, it is good to be back here in person. Uh, last week I preached via video camera in the screens, and it is great to see human beings um, I, if, if you catch me, I'm going to talk to you a whole lot. Poor Lindsay Mullins. I see her smiling face. She dropped something off at our front door, and I like opened up the window, and I was like, Lindsay! People! Hi! Uh, what do you want to talk about? How are you doing? What are you guys up to? Uh, I've been in the house all day, so uh, you want to talk? You want to talk? You want to talk? He's like, it's cold out here. I want to go back to my house. And I'm like, hey, so what do you guys want? So I have a lot of words. I have about a, a X a number that I need to use every single day, and Anna has been on the receiving end of that at 4pm uh, every day, and now you guys get to be on the receiving end of that. So just not along with me as I use all of my words that have been stored up for 10 days. We're moving in to a new series and transitioning out of 21 days of prayer, but as we always talk about, like we don't want to leave that 21 days of prayer there. Like that is not something we intend that we would do just at the start of the year and then it's like, okay, I did all of my praying for 2022 and then now I'll like pray again in 2023, right? That's not the intention or the idea, though if we're honest a lot of us find ourselves that we do something close to that. That is not to say you never pray the rest of the year, but it's just to say that giving yourself to prayer in that kind of way is something that you forget about. And we get that. I'm guilty of that, right? Like that is something that happens. that it, it, You go a year later and you go, oh man, like that was such a good three weeks where I really was intentional and I carved out mornings. And then all of a sudden the alarm goes off in the morning when you're by yourself and you're like... I don't know about that. That's, that's maybe for another time, right? I, I didn't sleep well last night. That's my excuse this morning. And we move on from that intentionality. So this series is kind of meant to serve as a bridge out of our 21 days, something that will help us kind of keep this going in a sense. And that's why we're in the Psalms. It's this prayer, brook, prayer book for the people of God. And specifically, we're going to be in the Psalms of Ascent so let me take a few minutes quickly, uh, is, is a relative term when I say that out loud, uh, and talk about what the Psalms of Ascent are, and then I'll talk about why specifically the Psalms of Ascent, well, once we decided that we were going to do the Psalms for the next four weeks. A theologian and a former professor of mine at Beeson Divinity School, uh, Dr. Alan Ross, uh, I actually got the joy and pleasure of being in his class on the Psalms. It was amazing. But he defines the Psalms of Ascent as this. It is the title given to each of the Psalms from Psalms 120 to 134. They're known as pilgrim songs to be sung when the Israelites ascended, that is quite literally went up to Jerusalem to go and worship at the different annual feast. Now, topographically speaking, Jerusalem would have been a bit like, I guess, sort of Birmingham and Alabama. Like, whatever direction you were coming from, you would have had to have gone up. So, the, the ascent that they're talking about here is a literal ascent. They would walk, right? Three times a year, there were these different festivals where if you were a faithful follower of Jesus, you would go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and you would come to the temple and you would celebrate these festivals. We're familiar with these. If you've read the Gospels, you don't even have to have read the Old Testament to be super familiar with what it meant to come into Jerusalem to worship. We have multiple stories uh, in all four Gospels where Jesus does this, Uh, most notably the Passover at the end. uh, We know that one well, and the donkey and all of those stories. Uh, The other one we talked about recently uh, back in the children's ministry as well as uh, here on Sunday morning but is Jesus in the temple as a little kid. They were there for one of these festivals and he stuck around. They made a pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. So the songs of ascent are that the people are actually literally ascending up a hill towards Jerusalem. But as all good things are, it is also a literal and a metaphor, right? There was this idea that there was something happening as you followed Jesus as a faithful uh, people of God. And this ascent ...extended beyond just the, metaphor, the literal ascent up to Jerusalem... ...but it was a metaphor. that These journeys were something for the traveler to follow after God. The song served as a reminder of the, for the pilgrims... ...that the ascent to Jerusalem and these festivals that they were worshiping in and partaking in... ...were a physical reenactment of something that was happening inside of them spiritually... The journey is of a believer always up and towards God. That is what we're doing. We are always kind of on the move towards God as God is always condescending and moving towards us. So in these songs and in their worship and in their celebration of the festivals, the people of God would remind one another and they would remind themselves of how good God was, of his faithfulness of His kindness to them, the way that He had provided for them again and again. They were reminded of the memories and the stories of His goodness and of His mercy. And so they would sing these songs, all 15 of them, uh, most likely in a row on their daily travels as they were walking towards Jerusalem together as a people. They would sing this songbook. And then once they got there, they would sing them again together together. Recalling and retelling of the faithfulness that God has shown to his people over and over and over. So why would we pick these 15 psalms? Uh, We're only going to preach through four of them as we come out of 21 days of prayer. I'm going to borrow quite heavily here in the next few minutes uh, from Eugene Peterson, which I have borrowed quite heavily from for the last 12 years of preaching but he has this idea in his book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction where he juxtaposes the difference between a tourist and a pilgrim. And he's going to hold these two like, kind of uh, in tension with one another to make a statement on what we are called to as followers of Jesus versus what we kind of live into culturally as Christians and, and religion and uh, relationship with Jesus that we sort of fall into the trap. And so he is going to say, and we will define these terms uh, as we go on, that we are called to the life of pilgrimage, that we are pilgrims following Jesus. And the, the two words that he wants to say will define our relationship and our journey with God the most are pilgrim and disciple. And those are words that oftentimes we are maybe too familiar with. Pilgrim, as I was writing this again and again, I kept thinking, because like Thanksgiving and pilgrims and Indians and like what are Native Americans? We now better know to to use that phrase, but like that's like the like that like play is the idea I kept coming, and so that gives us almost a negative connotation towards the word pilgrim in some sense, the, the, the kind of like tension with that history and what we celebrate over Thanksgiving, and, and it kind of maybe a weird connotation. Like, what does that have to do with my faith and my religion? And oftentimes, now, disciple, if you were raised in the church, other than being a sweet metal band, a Christian metal band, like your d- d- idea or thought of disciple, like it's a common word that we use over and over again. And so, maybe a better word to think of as we talk about this in our 21st century here in uh, the year of the Lord 2022 would be this idea of traveler and apprentice. Another common biblical word besides pilgrim would be sojourner. One that is always sort of on the move. And it's this recognition and this way of understanding that this is not our home. And yet we are always sort of at home where we are. Like this isn't permanent. Like there's, th- there's this movement. There's this action that we should be going towards. And We should always kind of be on the move. And yet... Through the grace and the kindness of the Lord, like we're always sort of at home and, and like there's no need to move. So, those are two terms. I think apprentice being this idea that we apprentice under Jesus for our whole life, uh, disciple with the religious connotation that we can give to it. We sort of think of this list of things that we have to do. And I think we've even made it in our 21st century, 20th century Christianity. We talk about this all the time that we've made faith a like mental ascent this mental knowledge checklist that we can kind of tick off the box. And what we've done with discipleship is we've made it this like task in our lives that we would learn a certain set of things that we can like spout back when somebody asks a question. And then we have a set list of things that we know that we're supposed to do. And as long as we know those things and do those things, we're kind of good. But that's not the biblical notion of discipleship. And so apprentice may be a better word because it is not about a knowledge, but it's about a life lived or a work done, right? If you apprentice under someone, we don't have this a lot. Uh, Kristen Francis and cutting hair would maybe be one of our best. She's hiding now because I just said her name. Um, But if you cut hair, if you're in that business, if you're uh, maybe in other art, photography, we kind of apprentice under people. But for the most part, like, that's lost in our society. We don't really apprentice under someone. But what you do when you apprentice is, like, the idea is, is you work so much in the thing, doing the thing, that it kind of negates the necessity for, like, the, the academic training, right? There are jobs where if you have certain apprentice hours, then, like, you don't have to go to school for it in the same kind of way. So I think of haircutting or barber. Like if you're a barber, like you, you can skip barber school if you apprentice enough hours. Now, it's a lot of hours, but it's this different way of learning. It's being in it. It's, it's following. And when you apprentice under someone, you take on their habits and their rituals because that's just all you know, and that's how you learn. And that's the call of what it means to follow after Jesus. As a believer, as a follower, today in the 21st century, we should be apprenticing ourselves under Jesus. It's common language that has been used by several kind of spiritual formation people. Eugene Peterson, as I'm quoting, Dallas Willard, uh, several of these guys that uh, now are no longer with us, that were writing in the 80s and 90s. We're using this language of apprenticeship. And I think it's really helpful as we think about giving ourselves to it in this kind of way. So as Eugene Peterson writes this book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, he's talking about getting at this idea of being a pilgrim, or a disciple, or is what we might say a traveler or an apprentice under God, and the problems that kind of inhibit it. So he writes this 40 years ago, and I think this part is just amazing to me. 20 years ago, he writes a 20th anniversary edition, and that would be like 2002, right? So he writes this 20th anniversary edition, and he says that he, he, in the preface to that anniversary edition, he's like, I understand that the world has changed a lot. And there's a lot of things that have updated. And even makes jokes and kind of throws himself under the bus. He's like, as I've gotten older, my kids have told me, like, if I don't learn to keep up with technology, like, I'm going to get behind the times. If I don't know how to use a computer, and if you've ever read his memoirs or his biographies, there's really funny things about how, like, he doesn't know how to use a computer, and yet somehow he, like, is super relevant to a world that's full of technology. There's something there. Hold on to that, right? So he's talking about how, like, he feels it in his old age that he's just, like, totally being removed from what is in vogue, what is necessary. And so he feels this weight. He's no longer a pastor. He's no longer leading a congregation. He's written the message, and he's gotten kind of famous. And so he's like, I I felt this tension of going back to this book that was supposed to be on practical discipleship, real life kind of earthy, messy, following after God. And he's like, I had intended or assumed that the task in front of me was to change an overwhelming amount of this book. And he's like, as I read through it and I went through it, I changed very little. Because he said the reality of it is, is that following God isn't all that different. It doesn't change a whole lot. It's pretty simple. It's about giving yourselves over to this life that God has called us to. It says, it turns out that some things just don't change. God doesn't change. He continues to seek and to save. And our response to that doesn't change, for we are called to continue to listen and to follow. And our response doesn't change. And we don't need to because we're dealing with the basics. God and our need for him. 20 years later, reading the preface written by his son to the 40th anniversary edition, I find it interesting that as I was reading through this book that I had tangentially, I've never read it cover to cover, but I'd read some of it in seminary. I've heard lots of people quote from this book. I've read parts of it 10 years ago that now, 10 years later, through all that we've gone through, last two years, COVID, election cycles, all of this, the tension that we feel in the world, like it's just as relevant today as it was then, because there's this simplicity that we're being called to and following after Jesus. When we are in relationship with God, in relationship with one another, there's a simplicity of this like just kind of natural way that God intervenes in our lives and works, And good things happen. And when we aren't, like we feel that tension, I think. And so why this series? Because we at Mosaic want to cultivate a life of apprentices. We want to apprentice under Jesus together. And holding on to things like... Prayer and different spiritual practices, those are important, and we do not abandon those or leave those behind. We use those to continue to cultivate a life of pilgrimage. Not tourist. Tourists go to a place and they kind of do it and enjoy it at their whims. They see the sights, they move on, they check out the monuments. They check out what is kind of convenient for them, and if they don't make it somewhere, there's no big deal. They return home. It is about consumption. And for a lot of us, as Peterson would say, and I would agree, we approach our Christianity with a tourist mindset. We come to places like worship on a Sunday morning. We mark uh, conferences and kind of go on these spiritual vacations that we might find ourselves uh, excited about. And we do what is easy for us. Now, hear me out on this. If you are a traveler, and I know many of you in this room are, and I've heard you talk about traveling, as a tourist, that does not mean that you do not respect the city you come from or are going to. It does not mean that you are not passionate about it. It does not mean that you take it flippantly or for granted. And I want to say all that because I think when we talk about these things, there's this easy way to go, no, 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 but I take Christianity very seriously. I carve out time for it. I give my resources to it. I I, I study it. I research it. I plan it out. and, And I do the same, right? We do these things. But there's still, as Peterson is saying, is a difference. And what we see in these Psalms, there's a difference between someone that has that kind of mindset that is doing it for their own good, for what they want, what they desire, when it's convenient for them, when it works out for them, when it betters their life versus someone that gives their life wholly over to being God's and being used by Him. Being caught up in the life of the kingdom in a kind of way that means, as C.S. Lewis would say, that like, you are going to miss out on things that you wanted to do because you've given so much to the kingdom. Like That's a natural progression. That's a natural result. So this life of pilgrimage, it's not about monuments. It's not about saying, look at how far we come. It's about footsteps. It's about looking and saying, that's the last place I was and I'm still moving. I'm still going. I'm still on this journey until all comes to fruition and the kingdom is realized fully. We want to cultivate that here. We want that to be something that we do. That we're a part of. We want to be a group of travelers together on this long obedience in the same direction and allow it to define us. This stands in opposition to what many of us are comfortable and used to. Culturally, if there is something that has developed over the last 20 to 40 years, as Peterson wrote this book starting 40 years ago, it, he was almost on something prophetic, I think, as he's talked about the Songs of Ascent, the Psalms of Ascent and their importance to us. Because he talks about culturally this idea That we are uh, slaves to immediate results. I was thinking about this the other day as I was watching a basketball game live in LA, and my TV's hanging on the wall, and there are no cables connected to it other than the one that gives it power, and I was getting mad that it was not coming in in perfect 4K, like that there was lag and that the quality was dropping. I was like, what is this? When, When am I living? 1999? This is insane. Why can't it be perfectly good, high-streaming quality? And then we introduced Jameson to a DVD, and he was like, ugh, why do I got to watch all these other movies? I think we put the wrong DVD in. We're like, well, buddy, you can't just, like, used to, like, just a few years ago. You didn't just get to watch whatever you wanted on demand all the time. Like, you had to actually, like, wait. What a novel concept and idea. This thing that we want things instantly My joke always is like, I will skip buying something I want because I can't get two-day shipping. At least now Targets and other places are keeping up with Amazon, right? So we have options for two-day shipping. But like now, if it's not one day, I'm like, can't get it to me tomorrow, but it's 11 a.m. I need it tomorrow. We want things instantly. We want the shortcuts. That culturally is like in our waters. And we treat Christianity the same way. It's really not that difficult in our cultural moment to get someone to be interested in church or in Jesus, especially in, in a culture as we're moving uh, post-modern. Really, like we're kind of post-atheist in some sense. Like spirituality is what we talk about. It's very easy to get someone interested in Jesus that maybe doesn't go to church, isn't a believer. They like those ideas. The real challenge in the 21st century, whether you were raised in the church or are new to the church, is getting someone to commit and to stay with Jesus. Because the reality of the Christian life is that it is not instantaneous. In fact, it's the, quite the opposite. The most common imagery we're given in the Old Testament of discipleship over and over again is this idea of oaks of Righteousness. If you know anything about gardening or plants, I know very little, but I know enough to know that it takes a really, really, really long time for an oak tree to get really big. My prayer as a pastor and as a parent is that I would be involved in the cultivation of oaks and not weeds, not something that springs up instantaneously. Now, here's the thing about weeds. I'm going to go off into the weeds here for a second on this because I think this is tangential and relevant. In about one month, my backyard is going to look really green and nice for a minute, because I have weeds and not grass, and so everybody with real grass, their fancy rich grass is going to be brown still. But mine will look thick and luscious and green in March, and it's going to look really nice. And then by July, it's going to be brown and dirt and dead, because it's going to spring up and it's going to disappear. Those fancy people with their real grass and their highfalutin society. (laughs) In June and July, they're going to have nice grass for their kids to play in and not mud, okay? And I'll be very envious of what they have. There's something about cultivating things that last. And I think that that's what we're called to as believers is to be a part of this cultivating process of something that lasts something that's sustained, something that's good, and it is not easy. We talk all the time about wanting things to be organic and natural in our relationships and our Christianity, especially those of us that have come from a more like higher structured, big church mindset, which was my background, and we want something real. That's difficult, okay? Organic food costs more because it's harder to produce. There's more work to it. It, You have to be more involved. You can't just spray some chemicals on it and walk away. You have to tend to it and that's what we're called to as believers is to tend to this thing it's got to take some work it is not going to be easy it is not going to be instantaneous it is a long obedience in the same direction life as a believer though we are talking about songs of ascent the reality of it is, is that was one small part of the life the majority of their life is lived in the plains, right? It's in the normal, everyday, routine, ordinary, where we function and we operate as believers and followers of Jesus. And so in Psalm 121, you see this play itself out. The pilgrim in Psalm 121 is contemplating their journey up the hill to Jerusalem. As they're going, they see the mountains. Now, here's what's interesting about the mountains it is a literal mountain in front of them. They're, they're ascending to Jerusalem. They see it. its beauty. There, there's majesty in it. And he stops and he asks, is this where my help comes from? Is this the point? And the resounding answer is no. My help comes from the Lord, the creator of this mountain. And so there's this practical thing that's happening where the pilgrim is recognizing that the thing they are doing is not the saving work in and of itself, which is a good reminder for us. We come and we do this, we participate in our practices and our disciplines of spirituality, not because they are the point, but because they bring us into closer union, into contact with the one that said those things are good, the creator of our life and the sustainer of our life. This is not the goal here, though we think it's important and we think you should be here, or else I wouldn't be doing this, that would be foolish of me. I think this matters, but this is not the goal. The goal of this here is to do the thing that they are doing, which is to reenact and retell of the goodness and the glory of who God is and to remind us and to be connected with people and to have these anchor points. So the help is not in just that ascent to Jerusalem. Also, this is subtle shade from the psalmist towards the neighboring religions. If you were fearful, there's three things that potentially could happen to the pilgrim on this journey to Jerusalem. There is the stumbling of the rocks and spraining of the ankle on the way up to the mountains. And they're fearful that they could be injured on their journey as they travel up the mountain. They're fearful that the sun would cause heat stroke. And then if you're uh, weird about moonstroke, uh, it's translated in some, or, or the, the light of the night, you think, how would the moon cause problems? Well, if you're on a multiple-day journey, I did not know this until studying this, the, the, the word lunacy is actually a play on this that you are uh, crazy because you're so exhausted and it's in the middle of the night and you can't think straight and you can't function because of like how uh, out of sorts you are with everything around you because you're so tired, you've been going for for so long. So that's moonstroke, heat stroke and moonstroke. Night, exhaustion, heat, exhaustion, and the perils of the road. So when the pilgrim looks up to the mountains and is fearful of this, that's his next complaint is that he's fearful that he would be wounded on the journey. He says, does my help come from the mountains? No. It comes from the creator of the mountain. This is a shade towards the other religions because if you were uh, in the ancient Near East and you wanted to have safe journeys on the mountains, you would go to a temple and you would give sacrifices to the mountain god. And if you were nervous about the sun being too intense for you, you would go and you would give sacrifices to the sun god. And if you were nervous about night... You would go and you would give sacrifices to the moon gods. And what the psalmist is repeating again and again is that you do not need to do this as a follower of Yahweh. You see, Yahweh is near to you. He is close. He is your guardian. He is in relationship with you. You do not have to go and give sacrifice to him for him to give you safe passage or comfort or protection. That is his natural bend and inclination is to come to you. And to be near to you in those moments. You do not have to go and wake Yahweh up as you would with the gods of Baal. Or Baal, however you want to say it. You can go and God is there. He, He is a God that never sleeps nor doth He slumber, as our Christmas hymns would remind us. But yet Baal was a God that the priest, their job was actually to go and to wake him up. That was part of the ritual sacrifice was they had to go and wake him up because he was sleeping because he didn't care about humanity. The psalmist is saying, no, our God cares about the intricate moments and details of your life and he is near to you. This is the message of the psalms again and again is that God is for you. He is good, He is faithful, and He will complete the work which He has begun. He will be near to you in the difficulties and in the hardships, because this is not what is promised in Psalm 121. It is not promised that they will never encounter a difficult, hot sun. It is not promised that not, there will not be treacherous moments along the journey and the path. It is not promised that the road will be easy, It is not promised that it will be without peril. What is promised is that the Lord will protect and be their guardian in those moments of the journey. Do we hear that for us today? This journey of following Jesus, it will be difficult and we will encounter lots of difficult things, hardships, sorrows, griefs, and burdens. And the promise of God is not that those will be, like completely distant from the believer. That would be lunacy, right? All of us in this room, collectively, I'm sure, if we shared our stories, in the last few months, we could share hardships and difficulties. Forget our whole life of following Jesus. Last 12 to 13 years of me taking this serious has been far from having difficulties and burdens. It's been far from easy. But what I can promise you is that it's been really, really good. As the Lord has met me again and again in those moments. And in the same way that all of the water in the ocean cannot sink a single boat unless that water gets inside of it. All of the hardships and the difficulties cannot deter a believer unless we allow them to come inside. And what God's promise is, is that he will protect us from that happening. He will keep those evils and those difficulties at bay in a way that they do not get inside of us and define us, what defines us is the word of the Lord. What defines us is his goodness and his mercy and his grace and his kindness, which is why then we can grieve, but not like the world. It's why we can sorrow, but not like the world, because it does not get inside of us in the same way, because what we have inside us is the promise of life and of hope and of the goodness of the kingdom of God so as we see in this psalm, and as we'll see again and again in these psalms, this is the promise of the Lord. I'm reminded in these moments, this protection, this guardianship that we see from Yahweh, this way that the Lord kind of protects and preserves, of how much that happens to us in our lives. And there's this really beautiful story in the Gospels. Jesus' very first miracle turns water into wine. The wedding of Cana. And I recently have been rereading through the Gospels and just kind of going slow whenever I have a moment. It's what I'll read a chapter or two here and there. And as I was reading that, it was kind of called to my mind and to my memory of what it means in that moment that the people at the wedding were unaware that God had protected them, that God had given provision to them. And I think sometimes with this idea that we see in Psalm 121, we can sit here and think, yeah, but like look at all these moments where God did not protect me or whatever we might come to mind. But I think that just as good of a question to ask is, how many times was I saved from shame and agony because of the Lord's guarding and guiding hand that I was completely oblivious to? The wedding of Cana, what's interesting is if you ran out of wine at a wedding, like if that happened here, now you're throwing a nice party, you run out of some wine, like that's not a great thing. You'd be a little embarrassed. Maybe you would need to go to the like Trader Joe's or whatever, stock up on some cheap two buck chuck and do what they say in Trader Joe or in the, in the wedding of Cana, which is serve the bad wine last, right? Like you'd be okay. It wouldn't be like a, a huge embarrassment. It'd be an inconvenience and you'd just be like, man, I hope people don't remember that forever. Or if you run out of food. In this moment, first century Palestine, ancient Near East, like you run out of wine, like this is a major, major cultural snafu. They would have thought that, like, this would have been a bad omen for the rest of the wedding or the marriage. Like, this would have been, like, it would have been offensive, it would have been rude. Like, there would have been shame brought upon that family. They would have been considered, like, less than for a very, very long time. And what you see is that. The bridegroom and the bride and their families, they never know that Jesus performs this miracle. It's done in quiet. It's done in the background. The party goes on like nothing ever happened. And so as we talk about this and as we move into our time of communion, what I'm employing you to do is think about the ways that God has provided and given to you in ways that you easily could have missed or been unaware of. And the reality of it is, is you probably won't be able to call those moments to mind because you're oblivious to them. But what we know is that it's true because we've seen it happen in other people's lives. And so we know that it happens in ours. Call to mind the moments and reflect on the goodness that we know God longs to have for us. Because if there is a message that we could get deep into our bones something that we could hold on to just like beyond all else. It's the simple idea that God is for you. He loves you. He's coming after you and he's completely relentless. He longs to be near to you and to give you good things. And the great lie that we hold on to again and again is that that's just not true. In a million different ways, we come up with all of the ways that we are convinced that God is holding out on us. Now, we may not consciously think that, but with our actions, what we do is we say, no, 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 I know better. I know what will make me happy. I know what will give me life. I know what will allow me to have knowledge of what is good and what is wrong in the world. And we take it for ourselves. It's the first sin in the garden and we live it out on a daily basis again and again by putting ourselves on that throne and on that pedestal instead of looking at God and saying, you are king and ruler and creator of all that I can see, touch, smell, participate in. And you are the one that longs to see me fulfilled, to see me flourish, and to see me have goodness in my life. And what I can promise you as someone that has followed Jesus for some time now, most of my life, I can promise you that that is wildly true. He longs to be near to you and for you to experience his goodness and his kindness. So, we're going to spend the next three weeks retelling and recalling through the Psalms of Ascent what it means that God is good. He is our protector, He is our guider, He is near to us. And we hope to take this into our bones and to hold on to it and allow it to infect us in such a way that we join the psalmist on these journeys in this pilgrim of following God with all that we have. As the band plays this next song and they come up and they get ready, uh, if you did not grab one of these cups on the way in, this is our COVID-compliant communion cups, good alliteration, helps you remember what they're for. Grab one of those cups, reflect on these truths, and at the end of this song, I'll come up and I'll lead us in the taking of the elements. And as we transition to that, to kind of keep with where we were, I'm going to invite you guys uh, if you, as you go get those cups, as the band prepares, uh, we're going to just kind of sit in a little bit of silence and reflect and allow the Holy Spirit to meet us where we are, to still our hearts and our minds, and to give us a moment to be uh, reminded of the goodness and the mercy and the grace of the Lord. Amen.